Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer here on Kids Talk Church History. In the 8th century, when England was still considered a wild and far-off land, a local monk wrote some of the most influential books in the Middle Ages. His name was Bede. His history of the English church became well-known all over Europe and encouraged the people of England to see how God had been at work in his church. He also produced a new translation of the Bible in Latin and translated portions of the Bible into Old English. But there's more. He was also a poet and a scientist. I'm Emma. I'm 15, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm Lucas. I'm 15, and I live in San Diego, California. And I'm Sophia. I am 14 and live in Orlando, Florida. It seems that Bede was quite a knowledgeable and influential monk, but what did he do specifically that makes us still admire him and his work? Well, since he wrote so much, we are able to study and discover the fascinating stories of Augustine of Canterbury, Ethelbert, Bertha, Ethelberga, and Edwin that you might remember from earlier episodes. Without his writing, we might have missed some of the most interesting stories in church history. I have also read that Bede used astronomy and mathematics to calculate when he believed was the correct date for Easter. This shows us that science was cultivated in monasteries and that the Middle Ages were not a time of superstition and ignorance. It also shows how Christianity and science work together. He even clearly stated that the earth is round. The idea that all medieval people thought that the earth was flat is a myth indeed debunked. Uh, Of all the people described by Bede, I think that one of the most interesting was Hilda, probably the most influential woman in the early medieval church. She lived slightly earlier than Bede, so when he wrote about her, it was fresh news. So what made her so important and influential? Well, she led monasteries in North England that were also famous schools and produced many leaders in the English church, including five bishops. She also enjoyed poetry and encouraged a local farmer, Cadmon, to use his poetic talents, and he became one of the first known Anglo-Saxon poets. Do we have any of his poems? Only one. So Bede said that Cadman heard this as a song in a dream. This is a translation from Old English. Now we ought to praise the guardian of the heavenly kingdom, the might of the creator and his conception, the work of the glorious father, as he of each of the wonders eternal Lord established the beginning. He first created for the sons of men heaven as a roof, holy creator. Then the middle earth, the guardian of mankind, the eternal Lord, afterward made the earth for men, the Lord Almighty. Kind of reminds me of Tolkien. (laughs) Well, that would uh, that'd be nice to hear in the old English. Maybe today's expert can help us with that. We have here today Dr. Elizabeth Nesbitt, who has studied ancient and modern history at Oxford University and is now principal of Emmanuel Christian School in Oxford, England. Dr. Nesbitt, thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you've heard our short introduction. Is there anything that you would like to add or correct to what we've talked about? Uh no, that's a great summary. Um, there's, I mean, these people have so much um, that we can learn from them. And one of the things I love about Bede is you can keep reading his book again and again, and you keep finding new things. It really is such a fantastic book. So I really hope your listeners take away from this to go and read a bit of Bede, because he is he's such a great writer. He's got so many fascinating things to talk about. And he also encourages him in faith, to live a life of faith. And he, that's the thing he most values in anyone he sees is their faith. Um, we'll talk a little bit about what that's Like you said, one of the many things Bede is known for is the 
book it is his book the ecclesiastical history of the angle people could you explain to us who the angles were so it's well it's they started in northern europe so sort of germany denmark and b tells us that about 449 they were invited over to england to help them with the barbarians um but i think the angles liked it quite a lot so they invited their friends and they invaded and came into england and they sort of came up through the south coast through what we call Kent, which is famous for Dover, the White Cross of Dover. And then they went up along the eastern side, um, up through England. Um, so some, some in the south, then some in what we call East Anglia, which is the bump off England, and then um, some further north into Northumbria. There were also some guys called the Dukes and the Saxons who also came. And combined by Bede's time, all of those guys are the Angles, which then become the English people. So uh, could you tell us a little bit more about Bede's life? Because we didn't, we didn't get much into that. <laughs> well, Bede's got a very interesting story. Um, he tells us that at the age of seven, his family gave him to the monastery. And we have the impression that he didn't have parents at that stage. He doesn't say, my parents gave me to the monastery. He says, my family gave me to the monastery. Um, so we assume he's an orphan. And actually, right at the end of his life, um, there's a letter about how he died. And he gets really upset when he remembers the verse that God promises that he will not lead us as orphans. And he's very troubled by that. So that indicates to us we think he was an orphan by the age of seven. His family gave him to the monastery. And he studied in this monastery, which actually was outside of Rome, probably the best place to be if he wanted to do some learning. It was full of amazing books and learning. And so in one sense, God placed him exactly where he needed to be for the things that God had prepared for him to do. So that was age seven. Um, by the time he was 19, he was ordained as a deacon, and then 30, he was ordained as a presbyter or a priest, um, and he spent his whole life in the monastery. We don't think he went very far. Some people wonder if he went to Rome, but there isn't a ton of evidence that he did, and he really stayed in this patch of England, which has had the most extraordinary influence, but 1,350 years after he died, after he was born, we're still talking about him. So today he's remembered as the Venerable Bede. I've read that many people in the Roman Catholic Church have been given this title and that it was the first degree in becoming a saint, but we don't hear this very title this title very often. I've only ever heard it attached to Bede. So do you know why it stuck with him? There are a few little reasons, but yeah, lots of history is guesses, isn't it? The hypothesis we think might be this, might be that. Some people wonder whether it's a sort of nickname because he was just so um, learned and loved God, loved God's word. And so the monastery wasn't just him on his own learning. He had a whole set of people working with him and for him. And there is a wonder whether he was just known fondly as the venerable bee because of the devotion of his life. In fact, that letter that describes his death, it says, I've never known someone who spent so much time thanking God and praising God. So he was known for his devotion. Um, and he was never sainted because he, um, the sort of qualifications weren't met for that. And he was actually, actually became a doctor of the church. This real sense he was a learned man that gave to the church through his, his gifts of learning. Um, so that's one thought. Some people talk about there seeming to be on a stone marking something, this empty bit that then got filled in with the word venerable. And so some people call oh, the angels wrote that. So that's a people near Bede's time have this story. So there are lots of ideas we don't fully know. Um, yeah, I think it reflects his holy life of learning and pursuit. All right. And then uh, could you also tell us something about Hilda's life, that woman in the church? Yeah, Hilda's 
it's fascinating. So she, um, her backstory is really fascinating. So she was in the royal family. So her dad was the nephew of King Edwin, who was the first Christian king in Northumbria, in the north of that territory I described. And her dad was actually had to go into exile. He was um, being pursued by an enemy. And so Hilda and her family were in Edwin's court around the time when Edwin, I think you had a thing about princes and queens recently, didn't you? And how often there were these Christian wives to non-Christian husbands. And um, Edwin had one of those. And to look after his Christian wife, one of the people, uh, one of Augustine's um, group of people who came to England was a guy called Paulinus. And Paulinus was sent to Edwin's court to look after the queen and to keep her on the straight and narrow, um, but also to teach the king and his court. And eventually the king made a confession of faith. And on Easter day, I think it was 64, his whole household, including Hilda, were baptised into the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. So she was baptised by Paulinus, who was the first Archbishop of York. Um, and she was part of a royal family. And Bede, who loves numbers, we might come to that later, he talks about her, she aged to 66. And the first half of her life, she was in secular um, occupations for 33 years. And for the second half of her life, she was in holy orders pursuing those. Um, your listeners might want to think about why that was an interesting number <laughs> for Bede, because Bede loved the significance of numbers biblically. And um, she was trained in her understanding of the Bible by someone called Aidan, um, who your listeners might really love finding out about. Aidan, I think, was one of these heroes as well, um, a really holy man of devout faith. And she learned much of what she learned under him. Well, eventually she was given some land by the then king to set up this monastery in what we think was Whitby. Um, and that's where something quite exciting happened or something that's significant in English church history happened that she was a part of. So how common was it for a woman to be leading a monastery that included both men and women? Yes, I think um, there's an interesting thing going on here that you, there's a quite a lot of women that you can find like Hilda who were in royal, who were in the extended royal family, um, who were given some sort of influence in the monastic life. Um, so actually, Oswy, who was the king who gave her the land for Whitby, his, when he died, his wife went into holy orders and led a monastery. Um, there's someone called Ebb, and I go to St. Ebb's Church in Oxford, and she was a princess, and she then became the leader of the monastery. So we get this pattern going on that these royal women, not necessarily queen, but royal women, who then are given these leadership roles within a monastic life as well. Um, sometimes quite close to where the royal family have some place that they go to, a palace or something like that. Um, so there is this relationship between the royal families and the monastic communities as well. So this is sort of what well, you've already covered sort of leads into my next question. But so there were five bishops who were trained in Hilda's monastery. And I've read that she's done. She did most of the teaching there. So um, you've covered this a little bit. But could you talk uh, talk to us about how she became so literate? Mm. Yeah, so obviously there was that royal background that gave her a good grounding. Um, then in terms of her biblical literacy, obviously Paulinus would have been quite helpful having a bishop in the court. Um, but also um, she actually went to a monastery in France for a year. Um, then I think her sister had a monastery that she went to. 
Um, and then Aidan, who was Bishop in Lindisfarne, he also um, really respected her and she spent time with him as well. So she learned from a number of different people um, who she spent time with, um, as well as having this learned background or this privileged background that she came from as well. And so uh, we also mentioned Cademan, the Anglo-Saxon poet. Is there anything that you'd uh, like to add about him? Mm. Yeah, Cademan, I think, is an encouragement to all of us. So Cademan was at this feast, and it used to be they'd go to feasts and they'd pass around this harp and they'd get you to sing. And Cademan, one evening, just he, he just left the room because he didn't feel he had that gift to be able to sing and make poetry like other people. And he went out to the, the bar at the back. And in a dream, he would, um, he had this vision of saying, why, why, why did you leave? You should go and sing a song. And he said, but don't you know, I don't do that. I'm not literate. I don't have that gift. Um, and the next day, though, he went back with this great song that you read. And Hilda was the person that spotted that gift. And she then encouraged him and encouraged him to think about all the different themes of the Bible. And, and he talks about the different bits of doctrine that he then wrote songs about um, and it's an encouragement to all of us often we don't think what we can offer to God is very much but actually Cadman brought his little and God multiplied it to be a huge blessing to the church in the early English church um, in their worship of God so I think Cadman is someone we should all read his story and take part from. And then uh, do you know where we can hear Cadman's poem in Old English? Yes, there's some lots of good reasons. I'm going to give you one to put on the show notes so that you can get your listeners to listen to it. Because I, I don't think I'll do it justice with my pronunciation, but I'll find you someone who can. So I have a different question about the date of Easter. I have read that there were two different opinions. Some churches celebrated on one day and some on another. That must have caused some confusion, right? Can, can you explain in a few words for our young listeners what that was about? Yeah, so Easter, as we know, always moves because it's based on the new moon, because the Passover is based around the new moon, and we know that Jesus died around Passover. So it's always moving. And there were just two different ways of working out how Easter could be dated, whether you used a 19-year cycle or whether you used an 84-year cycle. Um, and um, Bede really wanted the church in England to use the 19-year cycle, not the 84-year cycle, which is what many of the Irish people who influenced the northern the Northumbrian church. So in England, they had a synod, an official church meeting, and decided to keep just one method for all. I read that the final decision was not what Hilda wanted, but she accepted it. Was it common to have a woman in an official church meeting, especially one that involves such a major decision? Yeah, again, I think she was there both for a spiritual reason, but also politically, because she was um, the king, Oswe, um, had given her this land. Um, but she was also a woman trusted for her great wisdom. Um, met, we're told by many people all, from came from all around because her life just spoke and oozed wisdom. And actually, she didn't. She came. She was trained under Aidan. She would have supported the Northern view. And actually, she was really significant in holding to a view or committing to a view that actually wasn't maybe where she had come from and where emotionally she had been. So. I don't think she had a massive, in terms of the way Bede tells us, we don't hear much of her voice at the Synod, but I think her life and example is what Bede is often speaking about. The way she accepted the decision, the way she listened, that was what really spoke volumes to those who were there. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm curious, who led the meeting? Was it a bishop or did a king call it? So it was called by the king, um, but then there was this debate between bishops, and we particularly hear a debate between someone from Wilfrid, who eventually became Archbishop of York, and then someone from Holman, who was the Bishop of Lindisfarne. So the focus of the debate on those two people. I'm sure lots of other voices chipped in, but he sort of represents the voice of Rome and the voice of the North through those two voices. Okay. Uh, so I've read that Bede wanted everyone to hear the scripture in their own language, so he translated uh, some of it into Old English. Uh, what parts did he translate, and uh, would we happen to have any of those translations left? Sadly, no, we don't have them left. It's one of the sad things. Um, but we do know when he did the translation, and I think that's an amazing story in itself, so Bede, while he was dying, was still dictating this translation to his scribes. And there's a letter written about his death. And in that letter, we hear about how far he got. So he was doing the Gospel of John. And he got to the part, we're told, um, where someone says, what are these among so many? And that's the bit in the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, where they're thinking, what are you possibly going to do with five and two? Um, and that's where he got to in the translation. And then um, he finished that little section. It was finished, and then he died. Uh, but uh, I know that not many people could read back then. So uh, who did he translate for back then? Yeah, so I think um, there was a, the, obviously the, the abbots would need it, also the priests as well. So although, and we'll come to this a bit later, although lots of the liturgy was in Latin, um, he, in terms of the reading of scripture and the public reading of scripture, that was the way that the person on the street who couldn't read might hear the good news about Jesus in their own language. And Bede was really, really passionate about that. So, um, again, there's another famous letter that he wrote where he was really insistent that people should know the creed in Old English and they should know the Lord's Prayer in Old English, that they should know this basic confession of their faith and the prayer with which they approach their Heavenly Father in their mother tongue. Um, so Bede was really, really passionate about that. Um, but yes, most of the time, people were hearing it read to them rather than reading it for themselves. So I know there were lots of challenges in teaching the Bible in England. I've read, for example, that a bishop named Theodore of Tarsus had a hard time explaining the fruit that the Bible called a melon because most Anglo-Saxons had never seen it. He explained that it was like a cucumber, but larger. In fact, he said, quote, in the city of Edessa, they grew so large that a camel could scarcely carry two of them, unquote. What are some of the other challenges of teaching the Bible in England since the culture was so different from where the Bible took place? Well, interestingly, the major challenge um, when Augustine came with his mission and Bede records these letters, they actually went back to the Pope and do you really want us to go to these scary people? And so the challenge initially was coming to a culture which actually they feared was so hostile to um, sort of the gospel and to the good news. Um, in some ways, the culture is very different. At another level, it was a culture which was still open to the work of God, was still willing to see God at work. And, and one of the features of Bede is there are lots of miracles that he records of the things that people saw done and helped them to believe. Um, and Bede had a purpose in doing that, is what he was trying to say about history. But I, I think however hard it was um, in terms of some of the maybe the stories of the Bible, the truth of the Bible about the living God who works in our lives, who works in history, 
God bless that hugely within England. And, and B tells that story time and time again of how God made himself known through the proclamation of his word and the deeds of his people. Right. So sort of related to the question about language and stuff, we have a question from one of our listeners, Julian, who's 11 and lived in lives in Thorold, Ontario, Canada. So Julian asks, why are the church services at times in Latin when the people couldn't didn't speak Latin? Thank you, Julian, for this very important question. I guess that can be divided into two questions. In the Middle Ages, were, ch- were church services always in Latin or only at times? And why were they in Latin if most people didn't speak that language? So certainly the liturgy was in Latin, and Bede felt that was Bede loved the idea that this language held things together that came from Rome and was a sense that across the world the church was worshipping in the same language. So there was this liturgy um, in Latin that bound the church together. Um, but as I said, there was a use, particularly in preaching, increasingly preaching in people's tongues so they could understand the word in English. Um, and as I said, we had um, the Lord's Prayer and the Creed that he was really, really keen that people knew in his own language as well. Thank you again, Dr. Nesbitt, for sharing your time and knowledge with us. Before you go, can you tell us how you became interested in church history and tell us a little bit about your school? So I studied classics at university. And one of the things that's exciting about the classical age is that's where God chose to come and send his son. So there's an interesting question there. Why did God choose that moment in time? to come and reveal himself to us and that always really fascinated me um and then I did two years um after doing classics I did two years studying church history and for me that was trying to say what is the story that God has in the world what is God doing through history and church history is a wonderful way to study that and there are some amazing heroes too for us to follow as well and for me that's always been a really fascinating part of church history who are the people that God uses to do great things in the world and nearly always the story is he chooses the, the surprising people to do great things. Um, the school I teach at is a very small little primary school with about 70 children. Um, and it's a very special place where Jesus is at the centre of everything we do. And we're able to study the word a bit like Bede, see everything through God's eyes. And so um, I lead that school in there for six years. Um, and yeah, I feel very, very blessed to lead a community like that um, where we can really discover so much more about the world um, with lots of curiosity, lots of faith um, and with children growing in a love for God. And in that sense, I feel it's a bit like Bede's monastery, I hope. Mm-hmm. I love that. And just one last question that we now ask all of our guests. If you could meet anyone from early medieval history, who would it be? Ooh, see, this is very hard because I, when you say what's my favourite hymn, I have 15. And so with this, I've had to really struggle but the person I am going to choose is Chad. Um, because Chad, he tells about his life, he was reluctant to be a leader. Um, and the thing he really, really loved doing was praying. In fact, whenever there was a storm, he just prayed to God for the nation, prayed for God to have mercy. And if it stormed a bit more, he prayed a bit more. Um, so he was a real man of prayer. And I think um, that reminds us that often behind the people who make the stories in history and in God's story, there's always someone praying. There always needs to be someone praying. And so I think Chad's are reminded of that, the humility that says, God, let me be part of your story however you want it to be. But God, I'm going to pray that you write your story in the way you want it to be. So um, Chad, I think, is an encouragement to us in that, to be prayers that God would let his story be written and let his kingdom come. Yeah. Well, how do you spell the, that name of 
um, was it, I just want to make sure I have the name right of the, of the person from medieval history you'd like to meet. Chad, so C-H-A-D. Oh, okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Nesbitt, as Sophia just told you, we are so thankful that you decided to spend this time with us. By the way, side note, as a fun little aside, my great-grandmother is also named Elizabeth Nesbitt. So have a little connection there. Um, but we have to say goodbye for now. So um, before we go, we just want to remind our listeners, if you have any, if you have a question or comment, send it to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. Like Julian, who sent that very interesting question, you will be entered to win a copy of one of Simonetta Carr's books. Besides, on our website, you will find past episodes, special offers, news, recommended readings, and more. And don't forget to tell your friends where they can find us. By the way, if you know of anyone who would like to support this podcast by sending a donation, you can encourage them to check out our website. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on behalf of my co-hosts, Lucas and Sophia, I'm Emma. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History. <laughs>